0: One of the things that you have to understand about getting prepped for sermons every single week and prepped for series is that you do, like I do, hundreds and hundreds of pages of reading. And I'm always reading something. In fact, when I went to New York, I brought a couple books along for the next series that I'm planning on doing. And just sort of, I I always have something going, something in the back of my mind. And while you're doing that, you come across some random, weird, funny And so one of the things I wanted to share with you today, and it actually sets the scene for um, the message this morning, is this book. And I didn't actually read the book. I read, um, so just that disclaimer, I I was reading a scholarly work that mentions this book and talks about it. And so this book is called this. A man named David Levy wrote this book. It's got a crazy title. It is not a joke. It is actually serious. You could go on Amazon and buy this. It's called Love and Sex with Robots, the Evolution of the Human-Robot Relationship, right? I'm sure that many of you came to church this morning thinking, hmm, like, can I date my Roomba? You know, like, (laughs) it cleans my floor, but it could be so much more. Um, I I know, it's just wrong, right? Right. Levy, this is serious, like this is not a joke. He he actually works in the Netherlands at a university and he, he researches robots and he's been researching the human-robot relationship. Levy argues that marriage to a robot will be better than human relationships. Because in his, these are his words, it will offer all the upsides of a normal marriage. Okay? Without the downside of infidelity, illness, conflict, or complex differences. After all, robots do not grow up in dysfunctional families. However, I think what this guy failed to realize is people program robots, and maybe those people have grown up anyways. If this sounds crazy to you, it is because it is crazy. Like, this is not sane. (laughs) But to some people, this isn't so crazy. In 2013, there was a movie that came out called Her. And um, I actually never saw the movie again. I, I, you know, it's one of those things I didn't really want to subject myself to, but maybe some of you saw that. It portrayed a man falling in love with his operating system. He fell in love with his operating system, and it was on his phone. Now, if you think about it, you might think, oh, that's silly. But if you were like, came to America from Mars, and you had never been to America or even just around the world, any, it's not just America, it's everybody now, You would think that people had intimate relationships with their phones, right, if you'd never been here before. And and so this guy has this intimate relationship with the operating system of his phone. Now, we think about like robot marriage, that seems way far off and totally crazy. We think about people having relationships with their phone, but we think it might be just nuts. But you know, this isn't so crazy. This actually, some of this stuff is actually happening. I've got a friend of mine who is an engineer and four years ago was asked, he's a freelance engineer, so he gets approached by companies all the time. He was asked to partner with a company and make a sex bot. So a robot for the purpose of sexual relationship. So If you don't think that this is sane at all, this was four years ago, and in fact, it's already happening in a lot of places around the world. Now, I'm not up here to say, like, how paranoid would I be like, stand up here and be like, beware of robots, you know, that just sounds crazy, right? But it highlights something about our society, it highlights something about our larger thought process that we need to be aware of that actually hits us right where we're at in marriage, So largely fueling these fantasies is pornography. And pornography creates this illusion that you could have these self-soothing, non-sacrificial relationships. These relationships that don't really, you know, it's no big deal, it doesn't really matter, it's just a self-soothing type of relationship, this selfish relationship. And also, in a world where if it feels good, do it, reigns, and that's our prominent ideology, robot intimacy points to the fact that we're not willing to suffer for our relationships anymore. Essentially, what this guy David Levy is saying is, look at all the benefits. You don't have to suffer in your relationship anymore. But what if suffering is actually kind of a good thing? What if suffering with each other builds endurance and strength? And what if suffering with each other actually does something to your marriage that that actually builds the bonds and will not tear it apart. After all, weren't those the vows that you took? Through better or worse, through thick or thin, right? We don't run at the first sign of, of trials. We don't get out of here at the first time that we think that something's wrong. So how do we develop this perseverance in the face of suffering in our relationships? See, the robot intimacy thing is crazy. But it simply points to the fact that people around the world are saying, see, if you date a robot, you don't have to worry about it. Well, that's not true. I'll make fun of you, right? It's a little bit of suffering. In a real Christian way, though, like in a way Jesus would approve. I'm totally joking. Um, <laughs> but see, we have this culture of seeking to avoid emotional pain. We've sort of built this up in ourselves. We just need to avoid pain. And we see this almost as the highest virtue is happiness in in avoiding this pain. See, relationships and robots just take this to the furthest logical conclusion. They take this point to the furthest logical conclusion, that we want to be happy. We don't want emotional pain. We want to have, um, we'd rather have a relationship with a pre-programmed machine that's designed to make us happy than with a human. But you see, If your marriage is built on happy and pain-free, then your marriage will also be easily broken. Our culture refuses to take personal suffering seriously. Suffering is rarely seen as having any positive meaning. And we think that we must seek to avoid it at all costs. And this really explains to me why relationships have become so brittle. We would rather end a challenging relationship or a marriage than enter into the long, costly journey necessary to sustain it. See, our faith journey always begins at the cross. It begins at a place of immense suffering, suffering for you and suffering for me. And this morning, I want to talk about relationships through this lens a little bit, in a little bit of a different way, through the lens of suffering. So first, if you have a Bible, I'm going to be in Isaiah 53 just for a moment, and it'll be up on the screen, so if you want to see it on the screen um, because of your screen addiction, then go right ahead. (laughs) See how I shame you into opening your Bible? It's a good tactic. Anyways. Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 3. And partly I say turn to your Bible because it's good to just know where these places are. I don't know about you, but for me, I remember whether something's on the left side. I read a lot. So I remember whether something's on the left side of the page, right side of the page, middle, top, or bottom. And I would like write little notes and all that stuff. So it it sort of just helps me see it. So Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, And familiar with pain, like one from whom um, people hid their faces. He was despised, and we were held in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. That's where we begin our spiritual journey. Maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know anything about Jesus. See, the point of this scripture is that hundreds of years before Jesus even came to this earth, this was prophesied about him, that he would go on the cross and that he would take our pain, our suffering, our iniquities, all of our sin, he would take it on and bear it himself. He would eat our sin and he would make us clean before God. That's where our faith journey starts, is that Jesus was a substitute for our atonement. For our becoming right with God, Jesus stood in that place and took that on himself. Our journey in faith, our journey with Jesus starts in suffering. It begins there, but in the suffering of Jesus, not us. Suffering on our behalf. And Jesus told us that if we follow him, that we're going to be suffering in the very same way that if we follow Jesus. So, I mean, look what they did to him. Look at the cross. Look what they did to Jesus. And so we have to endure some of that same stuff. So the church starts, and after Jesus' ascension to heaven, and, his suffer- and it, we see a suffering church. And I just want to go over a few of these verses to remind us that suffering is in our DNA as a church. And that if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to have to deal with some of this suffering, and that we're going to have to persevere through it. So, Acts chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. What they mean by the name, they mean the name of Jesus. They were rejoicing because they were considered worthy of suffering. I mean, we would look at that in 21st century America and say, there's probably a mental disorder that these people had, right? There's probably something wrong with them, right? But they counted themselves worthy did you, have you ever said, man, did you see how they were causing us suffering? That we were so disgraced? That was awesome. It's like, no, that's something that crazy people probably say, right? That's what we think. But essentially what these people have said is we stood up for Jesus so much that the world hated us, and that's exactly what Jesus said is going to happen. It actually emboldened them. So suffering can embolden you. When you represent Jesus to the world, you will suffer in some way and it will embolden you. Romans five three. <clears throat> Not only so, but we will also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Suffering produces perseverance. It produces the gift of perseverance. Abraham Lincoln was married to a woman named Mary Todd. Many of you know this. Um, all historians in the 1980s, historians did this ranking of what presidents were the greatest and what first ladies were the, uh, were the greatest. But they also, in that, ranked people from top very first to very last. And Abraham Lincoln, by historians in all measure, was rated as the top president. His wife was ranked as the very bottom first lady, <laughs> He understood what it meant, that suffering brought perseverance. Mary Todd was a wealthy woman, but um, in, in, in our hindsight and understanding, she may have had mercury poison, she may have been a little bit off because of that, and then she also lost a son and was very uh, fell into some very deep depressions as a result. But she was known to be rude, sometimes violent. Um, uh, she, uh, she had crippling depression, she uh, assaulted some people, And um, she would go on crazy spending sprees, one time spending uh, a bunch of money on a thousand pairs of gloves all at one place in one time. One day, this was a different time. A salesman came to the White House, you know, door-to-door sales, just went to the White House, totally different time. If you've seen the movie Lincoln, you see all these people lined up in the White House. That actually used to happen. You know, they're just waiting to talk to the president. I thought, you know, like... When I was in New York on Friday, if I was to step outside my balcony, there were snipers staring at us. You know, literally, there were snipers. They had four sniper rifles. They were staring at us through their binoculars. If we were to step outside, we were told we'd have a red dot on us, so just stay inside. So, um, so now you can't do that. But anyways, a door-to-door salesman came in to talk to Mary Todd and was verbally assaulted And he was so angry and upset by this, he marched up to the Oval Office, marched through the doors, and told President Lincoln, your wife is so horrible that she verbally assaulted me, this, this. I mean, he just let Lincoln have it about how rude his wife was to him. Lincoln calmly and quietly stood up and said, you can endure for 15 minutes what I've endured for 15 years. (laughs) Ouch. Right? Suffering produces perseverance. <laughs> Lincoln was a man of those words, huh? Romans eight seventeen. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Right there, that sounds great. We're heirs of Jesus, like, like as an inheritance. And then listen to what he said. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share in his glory. So he's saying... If we are heirs of Jesus, we will also endure his suffering just as much as we get his glory. So we cannot be suffering adverse as a church. And what I'm saying is our culture begins to be suffering adverse, and we can't be that way. We have to understand that that comes and walk through that. 2 Corinthians 1.5, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, we also so also our comfort abounds through Christ. This is one of the many paradoxes. Even though suffering comes through the cross, true joy comes from relationship with Jesus. Even though suffering comes from our relationship with Jesus, also true joy comes from our relationship with Jesus. One more, 2 Timothy 2.3. Join me in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He's talking to his son of the Lord, Timothy. Join me in suffering. As a good servant of Jesus Christ, so I could go for longer on all these verses, but because there are so many, but my point here today is we cannot be suffering in verse because it actually makes us weak and brittle, not just in our relationships, but in all commitments everywhere. Let's keep going through this. Suffering walks you through the desert. Now, when you think about it, God's people when they left Egypt walked through the desert, and it was a short journey. Okay, initially was a short journey, but God sort of, I think, realized that these people had not weaned Egypt out of them. And so God made it a 40-year journey of suffering in the desert. And so what the desert did to these people is it killed that sense that happiness is the most important thing in the world. It killed the sense that... I need to get what I deserve. It kills all that sense. And what dies in the wilderness is replaced by God's plan for your life. And that's what happened to the Egyptian or the Israelites in the desert when they fled Egypt. Is that all that Egypt was weaned off of them and God ripped that away from them. See, like I said, when we become a culture that's adverse to suffering in all, all forms of suffering, we become fixated on comfort, Right? So this last week, the air conditioning on, in, in the other building on my side where my office is, the air conditioning went out. And, and I was in there until um, like 3 o'clock one day and finally was like, I can't take it anymore. And, and I like, went to a Starbucks to cool off and, and, and do my work there. But you just think about this. like If your air conditioning goes out, like how bad do we freak out in the first five seconds, right? right? We've become so addicted to comfort. Like, if they don't have, um, a couple of weeks ago, we were at a restaurant, and they didn't have bacon. Remember that? And I was like, oh, excuse me? I was going to order a BLT. My comfort is the most important thing. I mean, like, it, we become so accustomed to getting everything that we want when there's something small that doesn't make it. We freak out. I mean, the lady saw how important it was. And uh, they ended up getting bacon, but I didn't get any. <laughs> um, so we've become so addicted to comfort that things break easily now. Things just break easily. I mean, think about it. Like, your, your electronic devices are designed to break after a couple of years. They, they are. That's why you need them every couple of years. Um, when we're so fixated on comfort, it, it devastates our marriages We've become a weak people. We've become a people that things break easily, commitments break easily, we walk away from our jobs easier, marriages break easily, families break easily, and because of that, our relationship with the church breaks easily, and our relationship with Jesus eventually breaks easily. Things break easily now. I mean, if you've, if you've seen this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Many of you might have seen those marriages where you just say, can't, can't you just, can't you just talk? Can't you just go somewhere and and work this out, work through the mess, and they decide not to? It's heartbreaking because comfort reigns. And so we have to learn to suffer because if we don't suffer, we'll never be a patient people. We'll never be a persevering people. And we have to have persevering and patience in order to follow Jesus better. I mean, think about this. If you didn't have patience, would your prayer life be productive at all? This is a side point. This isn't the main point. If you didn't have patience, would you go to God over and over and over again and keep requesting of God the same things? Probably not, because you wouldn't be patient enough for that. Suffering produces patience. It produces perseverance. And when we go through that, things become stronger, not weaker. I don't want to speak for... All Buddhists everywhere, but um, I was on a panel with Buddhists at one time speaking about the, the Christian worldview. And one of their points is that all suffering is bad and evil, and I just can't get behind that. They want to eliminate suffering in the case of, you know, they want to help people. Of course we want to help people. We want to help people from, from, from broken things in life and stuff like that. But a little bit of suffering is what Jesus went through. It's what the church is called to go through. It makes us stronger people. And like I said, Jesus promised that as we follow him, this persecution will happen. We've become, we've become such a comfortable peop- people that any discomfort causes us to run. Like I said, think about the things that we complain about. No bacon left. A few years ago, I used this example out of Genesis 29 as this powerful look into marriage. Um, it, was, it was Genesis 29, and I'm going to go to it right now. Flip with me there. We're going to spend a few moments there. And I want to look at how patience and persevering actually works to strengthen your marriage through the, in the midst of suffering. So Genesis 29, one of the things that's happening is there's this guy named Jacob. And Jacob is kind of a terrible brother. And you've, if you've been around long enough, you've heard me preach through their whole story. Um, but Jacob is kind of a terrible brother. He sort of takes his brother's inheritance. He takes his birthright. And then he, his brother wants to kill him. And so he runs. He flees. And he goes to his Uncle Laban's house. And Uncle Laban, he's, he's okay, but he's kind of a shady guy in that he, he sort of tricks his nephew here. But he goes to his Uncle Laban's house. And, and so you have to understand the cast of characters before we get in there. So starting in Genesis 29, verse 14, sort of the second half of verse 14, it says, After Jacob had stayed with him a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine... Shouldn't you, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the other was Leah, and the name of the younger um, was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. That's kind of like a Bronze Age way of saying that Leah wasn't as lovely as Rachel. Rachel. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Oh, isn't that sweet? Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the palace, um, of the place, and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. Now, you have to, understand, like, how in the world would you pull that off? You're thinking, we have this great thing now in the 21st century called electricity that they did not have. And if you've ever been in the desert of Israel, you know it's dark, okay? It is dark, also, they would have been celebrating a few days beforehand with much wine. And so there's a chance that he wasn't exactly in his right mind, maybe, maybe not, but also it was completely dark and you would have been wearing a face covering. So it would have, he didn't know it was Leah. Leah. So Laban brought together all the people of the, the place to gave a feast. But when the evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zipfla to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I've served you for, for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it is not our custom to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. "...finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work." See, Laban pulled a fast one on him. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel for her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years." So if you've never heard this story, it's kind of, you know, don't, don't take our 21st century ethics and judge the Bronze Age, like that's initially what we want to do, and be like, these are horrible people, but they had just it's simply a different system of marriage called Leverite marriage, and it was a little bit different, and we're not going to go into all that today. But a couple years ago, I, I used this as a, as a parable and as an example, I want to use it again today as the parable of an enduring marriage. The first fill-in-the-blank on your bulletin this morning is, the only way to get Rachel is to love Leah. The only way for Jacob to get Rachel, the woman he always wanted, was to love Leah. The Leah that he didn't necessarily want. The Leah that was not as lovely, that had weak eyes. That Leah. See, on your wedding day, you get Rachel. She's beautiful. She has the best figure. Her hair is all done up. It is carefree and fun. On your wedding day, you, you bring a ring for her. You serve her. You spend time on, on her. And, and it seems like there is nothing wrong that can happen on your wedding day because you have the Rachel you've always wanted But it doesn't even take a few short years, maybe in a few short weeks, a few short months, you start to realize that you also have, in addition to the the Rachel you've always wanted, you have the Leah that you didn't necessarily want. You realize that the woman sleeping next to you, well, guys, the woman sleeping next to you is Leah. She uses your razor to shave her legs. And this is the most frustrating thing. In the beginning of a movie you both have never seen, she'll ask you, what's going to happen? I don't know. I've, I've never seen it either. She starts to ask you loaded questions like, if you had one thing to change about me, what would it be? Right? She insists on having conversations with you during that instant replay. Like, or during the live event, like, were you really, you're like, no, I just wanted to see that. It's like, well, what do you think we should have for dinner? Did you, ah, uh, you caused me to miss that. See, we, we get the Rachel we've always wanted, but we also get her twin sister, Leah. And ladies, you thought you were marrying Brad Pitt. You know, you thought you were getting George Clooney, Right? You thought that, like, the guy on your wedding day was, like, the, the silver fox or something like that. I mean, except for he snores so loud you, you can't sleep, even though he swears he does not And I don't, sweetie. <laughs> when he wakes up, he charges around the house looking for his shoes and wakes up all three kids. I don't know who would do something like that. And then as he leaves, he slams the door and Jacob, I mean, some two-year-old boy starts screaming, right? (laughs) He charges around the house looking for his keys. You thought you just spilled your guts. I mean, you just said, like, you just poured your heart out, and he just turns to you in the most loving way. He says, I'm sorry, are you talking to me? I mean, like, (laughs) this are the types of things that happen in marriage. These are the types of things that make you want to pull your hair out. I mean, this isn't, like, health suffering. This isn't, like, the real suffering that people go through, but my point is we end up getting two when you say, I do, don't we? You end up getting the Rachel you've always wanted and the Leah you never did, right? But it's enduring, and one of the things this parable teaches us about marriage, and it's not actually a parable, it's a historic event, so my genre is, I'm using it as a parable, so know that. One of the things that this teaches us is that you have to love the Leah in order to get Rachel. You have to love those things about the person that drive you nuts or else you'll never end up getting the Rachel you've always wanted. Instead, you'll, you'll fixate on all those things that you hate, all those things you can't stand. See, and I think couples discover this all the time. And I have huge respect for couples that renew their vows because you know what, they've seen both sides of each other. They've seen the good and they've seen the bad. And even through that, they say, through thick or thin, we're going to be stronger together and we're going to stay married and we're going to go through this even more. Christian couples, I said this last week, Christian couples discover this all the time, that you're simply married to a sinner, somebody who is sinful. That who they married has so much Leah in them. But like I said, loving the Leah actually gets you to Rachel. Rachel. Number two, and we're going to talk about how this is all bigger than we could ever imagine. A good marriage is not something that you find. It's something that you work for. A good marriage is not something that you find. It's something that you work for. I love it when young couples tell me, you know, they've been dating a couple months. So they're like, I found the one. And, like, where, where I really believe that is when older couples, like, because they were going through so much at the time, they're like, oh, we're... We know each other for a couple months, then we got married, and then they've endured all this time. I I believe it when an older couple tells me that for some reason, but when a 20-something couple comes to me and is like, oh, we've been dating six weeks, and they're perfect. And am like, yeah, you just don't see the imperfections yet because your eyes are full of fuzzy um, honeymoon stage things, and you only see good things, and you attribute things that are cute to things that are not cute at all. And you say things are great that are not great because a good marriage is something that you work for. It's not something that you find. Jacob had to work for Rachel. Good old Uncle Laban pulled the fast one on Jacob, and he ended up working 14 years for her. Sure, he had her after seven, but he had another seven years of work in him to put in for that relationship. My question is this Do you work for your marriage? Do you work for it or against it? There's two different kinds of work. You can work for something or work against something. Do you fight for each other or do you fight to win against each other? How do you fight? Our vows are through good times and bad, through better or worse, or richer or poorer. Does that covenant you made before God stand? Do you sit and talk things out? Do you work through the struggles of a mortgage? Do you work through the struggles of a health issue? Do you work through the struggles of communication? Do you work through all those struggles? A good marriage is something you work for. Jacob had to work 14 years. And see, this idea of loving Leah to get Rachel even applies to something so much bigger. It's not always easy to be a Christian. Let me tell you something. When you first become a Christian, you love Jesus. It's like, man, Jesus forgave me. He forgave me of all my sins. I'm so excited. It's so, it's so amazing. And then all of a sudden, it's like, after a while, you get really, you start coming to church and life is good. And then you're like, man, people in church are so, you know, there's so much hypocrisy. And, and oh, I don't know if I like the church anymore. And people start harping on the church because the church, guess what? has people in it like you and me who, who sin and do messed up stuff. And, and, and sometimes we hurt people on, and it's on accident. We want to forgive. And we want to be good. And we want to do all that stuff. But we're all people who are working on life together. We're all people who are working on relationships with Jesus. But after a while, the bombardment of media, the seeing the pastors fall, all that stuff gets people into a really bad spot about the church. And they end up hating the church but loving Jesus. What I want to say is that's sort of a impossible To hate the church and love Jesus, but B, if you really want the Jesus you've always wanted, you have to love the church, because we are His body, and it is in bearing with one another that you become a brother or a sister with one another. It's in walking through those hard times as a church together. It's in navigating the 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 kidney transplant, it's in navigating the the emergency surgeries, it's in navigating all these different things together and walking through each other that builds up the body of Christ. So if you want the Rachel you've always wanted, then you have to love Leah. And if you want the Jesus you've always wanted, you've got to love the church. It just goes together. Sometimes the church almost looks like the ugly sister, not the beautiful bride it was intended to be. And we have to love it, failures and all, in order to get the Jesus that we've always wanted. One of my favorite authors, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, uh, an immense theologian, a prophet, a guy who died at Hitler's hands in World War II in a concentration camp, wrote this. Christian community is like the Christian sanctification. The The more thankfully we daily receive what is given to us, the more surely and steadily we fellowship and increase and grow from day to day as God pleases. Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. Rather, it is a reality created by God in Jesus Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground, the ground and strength and the promise of all of our fellowship is in Jesus alone, then the more serenely we shall think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. What he's saying is Jesus is revealed in fellowship and our sanctification is in loving other members of the church and loving each other as a body because when we do that, we get the Jesus we've always wanted. So it's the same in suffering and struggling through relationships. When you endure with your spouse, you get the person you've always dreamed of. You get the stronger marriage that you've always wanted. Talk to anybody who's been married 50, 60 years. We, um, we have a couple of here that's been married 60 years, and it'll be their 60th on the 60th, and I think they don't want me pointing them out, so I'm not going to do that, but why don't you go congratulate Merwin and, and Hilda when you get a chance, because we've been married 60 years. Um, so I'm not going to physically point to them, but why don't you go congratulate them. They will tell you that you have to walk through the difficult times in order to get to great times. They will tell you that navigating those hard times if you guys weren't, if you were planning on telling people, would you tell them this? Um, that you have to, when you navigate those tough times, they become easier over and over and over. They will tell you it takes work. They will tell you it's a struggle. They will tell you to endure, because that's what makes a great marriage. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, "It's your sanctification to love the church. It is for your sanctification to love your spouse. It is for your holiness and not your happiness." Now, I don't think that I'm in danger um, of any of you asking me uh, to marry your robot later. But do you see what I'm saying when we say in our culture, when we want to reject any type of suffering, we want to embrace only comfort that some people would be drawn to this idea. And if you think I'm crazy, search some of these articles and you'll see that people in Japan are trying to marry things uh, that are inanimate objects like a robot. It's already starting to happen because we've become so adverse the idea of suffering through any relationship because they're hard. I want to call us today to reject shallow, superficial, soothing relationships. The false comfort that pornography gives do you see that when you endure this suffering, it makes you all the stronger in your relationship? So I've got three responses today. One, if you're married, I want to challenge you to identify the Leah in your spouse. I want to challenge you to identify the Leah in your spouse. And I want to challenge you to love Leah. That's it. What is the Leah in your spouse? What are those things that you want to pull your hair out? And I want to challenge you to love Leah. Two, if you're single, I want to challenge you to love the church, to love fellowship. And next week, actually, we're going to do a whole thing on singleness and how God calls some people to that. We're going to do a whole thing on that. But when you love the church, you'll get the Jesus you've always wanted. And three, everyone, I want to challenge you to reject the lie of easy and happy and carefree because that is a fantasy, not a reality. And when, we're, when we base our relationships on fantasy, they end up failing. We have to base our relationships on reality. And I want to call you and your spouse to endure suffering with Jesus. Because in Scripture, the outcome of suffering is always joy. Let's pray. Father, So many of us are in relationships and are married, and Lord, sometimes, some way or another, we go through good times and the bad. Lord, right now, I want to pray for all marriages. Lord, I want to pray for the marriages that are here in this building and the marriages represented in our church that even aren't here today. Lord, would you strengthen those marriages? Would you strengthen those people, Lord, as they walk through suffering together? Would they look at each other and just say, we're going to get this. We're going to get through this. We're going to do this together. Lord, we know that the reality that you suffered for us. Lord, you laid down your life for our sin. God, you endured trauma on our behalf. So Lord, it is the least that we could do to walk through some of this with our spouse and come out the other side. Lord, give us an ethic to work together, to work on our marriages, to make them stronger, to build them up. And Lord, I pray that you strengthen our commitments. Lord, at the heart of marriage is this notion of commitment. And Lord, when that breaks easily, other things break easily. So Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us in our commitments. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.